Hello, this is the Plant Book Club. All right, welcome to the Plant Book Club, where we read different books related to plants. Uh, I'm Ellen. Hey, I'm Tegan. And my name is Joram. Hi. And this week we had, or this month, we had the delight of reading Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And she is a fascinating person. She's a botanist at SUNY, and she's also a member of the Potawatomi Nation. And so she brings a really interesting perspective to plants and the whole idea of shepherding natural resources and whether that's even a word I should use. But if there's ever been a book that made me want to move to the woods with the author, oh, this yeah. is it, for sure. I Definitely would agree. with the author, because she would know what to do in the woods, whereas I would be very, very lost. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely agree with your summary. Um, this book uh, got me really excited about the great outdoors, about... Um, nature and like i'm i'm a very sort of icky person around insects and nature and like goop and dirt and mud <laughs> uh and just to, to sort of say that at the front of the book already this got me so excited about all of these things um especially of like getting my hands deep into into the dirt into the ground and have like darkened skin from that and so on um how, how did you feel when she described um salamanders as wet overripe bananas <laughs> <laughs> that was beautiful to me <laughs> talking of things that are squishy <laughs> yes yeah so i wanted to ask y'all what your favorite chapter was out of the whole book oh uh, i don't know i don't know if i have favorite chapters i have um like there's so many different unique stories um through it all i mean it's it's somehow got a chronology, but it's also got kind of different perspectives that are all brought together. And there were some stories I really loved, um, but I don't know if there's a specific chapter. I really liked the the bit about um, cleaning out the, the pond. So there's this kind of story, which is, I liked that it had a lot of personal elements. Um, Ellen, I hope this is not the bit that you didn't like. Um, yeah. She's talking about having this, this pond on her property, which is kind of filled with lots of algae from like over-nitrification and it's like gloopy and disgusting and she wants to clean it out as part of her quest to be a good mother. But there's this whole discussion about how her removing the algae is also leading to like other organisms losing their children because she picks up strands and strands of algae and it, it catches beetles and tadpoles and, and stuff as she pulls it out. And this kind of discussion of how we move through the world and what we want and how that matches like the the world around us. I thought that was really, really beautiful and really interesting. But honestly, there were so many good different stories that were just great. Yeah, I guess we should mention more about about how this is or, this book is organized, which is like mm -hmm. every every chapter starts out with some sort of story and they're all kind of different. And so you mm -hmm. can you can flip to any one chapter and and jump right in right yeah and a lot of them are like her personal life growing up um with respect to both her job so her role as like a professor of ecology and then other ones with respect more to um her her children and then other stories with respect to her connection to her people and trying to learn the language and also learn the customs um from that so there's kind of different angles and there's also some um links to other people who have different roles and different connections with their environments so 
Yeah, I th what I really liked about these different stories is that they almost always had some sort of link to science. They had a scientific component to them, um, mm. but intertwined with personal stories that I found extremely charming and enjoyable to have the presence of the author in the text. Um, one of the, the defining things for the style there is something she actually says qu uh, quite early on. Um, she says, I'm a plant scientist and I want to be clear, but I'm also a poet and the world speaks to me in metaphor or metaphor. And this is something that to me carried through the whole book that um, she talks in this very imaginative, colorful language, just very like describing with lots of metaphors and yeah, a very beautiful language but she's also mentioning scientific facts and making it clear where, where there is the science and where is sort of the mythology or spirituality or opinion and other pieces in there. Um, but all mixed together, that to me was a very enjoyable read. Yeah, and it doesn't feel like it. she does it at the loss of the science, which is not what we've had in the past with some of the other books we've read. So we discussed like um, Stefano Mancuso. Um, and there was an idea in this book which really reminded me of that book, um, which was talking about, let me see if I can find the quote, talking about this idea of having a relationship between plants and animals and how they can feed back on each other. So hang on, give me one second. It's on page 124. And she's talking about how um, like humans eat fruit and help disperse them as an animal dispersal and she said something like the sweeter the peach the more frequently we disperse its seeds nurture its young and protect them from harm food plants and people act as selective forces on each other's evolution the thriving of one is the best interest in the best interest of the other and we've had this kind of idea before with Stefano Mancuso about you know plants gaining something from humans but this is done in such like an artistic and scientifically accurate way she doesn't trade in science to make her story and that's that's really clever and and really like i'm just amazed by it the, this ability to to link the storytelling with the science it's so good yeah and just to because it fits so well i have another note um that's going in the same lines that i had to think of because of the other book that we read before where she says when i speak of the gift of berries i do not mean that uh, fragaria Virgin uh, virginiana which is strawberry has been up all night making a present just for me strategizing to find exactly what i'd like on a summer morning so she actively goes against this idea that there is uh, sort of this conscious plant intelligence that we saw in the previous book that we talked about where the author would have made a statement that the strawberry did in fact voluntarily make these um, best qualities so it is picked. He just says like for me it has all of these qualities or for, for the author for her um, but she understands that the plant didn't do it specifically for her that there's like other evolutionary pressures behind it. Um, so yeah so that's what to me that, that, and that's quite early on in the book I was already a big fan um, mm. when I read that because we came from the other book where <laughs> I was um, annoyed so much by, by this this idea. <laughs> but yeah, so I can't say really what my favorite chapter is, but Ellen, you seem to have opinions on the different chapters. Yeah, my favorite chapter, and this ties back into just what we were talking about, was the one where she laid out the introduction, the methods, and the discussion, like a scientific paper, but for her talk about how her graduate students studied sweetgrass mm -hmm. and whether the cultivation of sweetgrass helped it to grow. Um, I thought that was absolutely fascinating and I thought that really 
was the essence of the book in so much as it was the perfect combination of what the the intro is indigenous wisdom and scientific knowledge her two identities that she's marrying throughout this book and um yeah my least favorite chapter was the one where she wrote as her daughter did that bug y'all oh that was a bit weird yeah that, yeah. that was a bit yeah. confusing honestly um I, i'm not sure did you think her daughter helped her write that or i don't think she did I, I wanted like way more explanation about it and I felt uncomfortable because I was like, you can't write as your daughter. <laughs> that's cheating. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's true. Although I, I think I, it didn't bug me as much, but yeah, it was, it was a, an irritating way because it also fell a little bit out of the flow of the, the rest of the things. Yeah, the other are so, so much her point of view that there's just like this one chapter where it isn't her point of view. And it, she says some, like, yeah, just some things that are, like, different interpretations of different people. Like, I think she says some flattering things about herself, even. And I'm like, <laughs> that's kind of cheating. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, to write that, she must have had some discussion with her daughter about what her daughter would say, right? I mean, there must have been some sort of input to be able to have that. It's quite early on in the book, that, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's the chapter which Hazel, um, which is I th in, like, the first quarter or something of the book it's quite early on so i had actually already forgotten um about this switch of perspective by the time i i went through the book oh yeah so it starts off as told through the eyes of my daughter and i actually was like what does that even mean and then i was like oh really it's like literal <laughs> i thought maybe there was some sort of symbolism involved here it's it's literally through the eyes yeah same mm. that was my thought process as well <laughs> <laughs> i don't really have a favorite chapter but i have a couple of chapters that i i really enjoyed i think the one that got me or was there one maybe let me phrase that as a question was there one chapter for you that made you want to try something out yourself the strongest like out of all of the different things that she describes that you wanted to get active yourself the one about camping with her um with her class that she was taking it's yeah it's it's in in uh, one of the later chapters right but anyway there's this one chapter where she goes with a class that she's teaching to treat the swamp like a grocery store and um it's fascinating like the different ways that the, they treat the swamp like a what do they call it? a, a wall marsh yeah wall, wall marsh yes that is it yeah yes they treat the store the swamp like a walmart and that it has the food that they need it has the camping materials that they need it's fascinating and then they have mm. a big discussion about whether that's sustainable, what they've taken from the swamp, which is, like, relevant, you know? Because do we have that discussion about our mattresses or our uh, smoothies that I just got this morning? <laughs> I, I didn't have a discussion about that. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and that ties back to so many other things, like this, this theme that runs through the book. So there's a discussion when she's actually in a real store and she's talking about how everything around her is dead because it's from plastic and she can't have a connection with it like mm -hmm. you can have with nature there's a similar discussion about um the sedar tree and use of this like using these sedars 
for the entire lifetime of a person. Like you, you shred the insides very fine and make a kind of fluff that you the, the children are laid in, the, be- the the babies are laid into, and then it also becomes the canoes, and then it also becomes you know building materials, and then finally it's the coffin. And this like these kind of different connections to nature are just they run throughout the book, and they're so fascinating, honestly. I think the one that like got me most interested in in trying something uh, myself was the chapter the three sisters about the co uh, what's the word for it like um, co culture of um, three different crops and that mm-hmm. is corn beans and squash and how these have complementary characteristics and both in in germination time but also in their growth behavior and then also in um, sort of the things that they give us in in terms of um, nutrients and that got me really excited about uh, maybe next year planting the three sisters in my garden and seeing that for myself Um, because the idea is that you have the corn that shoots up first as this like very strong stalk this strong uh, structure and then the the bean can twine itself up the the stalk of the corn and then the squash with its its large leaves can cover the ground and so all of them like the the corn helps the bean to to reach uh, bigger heights the squash covers the ground the bean is also um, able to fix nitrogen from the air and um, that can act as a fertilizer for the other plants and that whole chapter got me just really excited about this idea of um, making out of the, the smallest possible space the, um, a sustainable large or like high yield uh, culture and yeah. Um, yeah and also like these three things are not stuff that I usually eat here um, so that would also be exciting for me to come up with a diet that incorporates these these three um, crops because yeah I don't really eat that many beans or corn or squash here. Can, can you grow corn in Germany? Is that possible? Yeah I mean we have corn fields definitely mm-hmm. um, I don't know I, we, I guess we have like a European variety that's um, adapted here to our our habitats but we definitely we grow corn in, in Germany so it should be possible um, yeah but that's yeah it's just um, yeah it just got me really excited to to get my hands dirty yeah, that's interesting because I kind of grew up hearing about the three sisters and like that's a thing they teach a little bit in U.S. schools. Like I knew about the combination of squash, corn and beans that people grew here. So I'm kind of curious, like as Europeans, I don't know, was, do you think you had a different perspective on the book? For me, there were a lot of aspects that I had no relation to before or knowledge about um, a lot about the different indigenous tribes were completely new to me like I had a very general understanding of um, of the culture of indigenous people like I think mostly through like inappropriate um, costumes during the carnival season Um, that is pretty much the only way we see that in Germany We, we talk about this culture as pretty much as cultural appropriation which is pretty terrible so to me it was really exciting to to see this story told that i wasn't aware of um and also things like the the re sort of the reculturing the forceful reculturing of uh, indigenous people was something i wasn't aware of that that happened um the i don't know what the there's this this boarding school that they were sent to and then they had to like they, they were forced not to learn their own languages and they were brought up away from from home so that they would sort of 
um, force, as they said, the Indian out of the people. Um, and that was something I wasn't aware of that that happened. And I found that quite interesting to learn about, um, which is trying, yeah, Carlisle, this uh, Carlisle place where, um, yeah, there was this forceful re-education of indigenous people. Yeah, for me, I, I wasn't so familiar with the, the US-American stories, but it's really similar to the history of the indigenous population in Australia and down to the boarding schools as well. So we have this stolen generation where the the government decided that the best thing for the Aboriginal people was to take away their children and, again, force them into Western schools where they would learn to be basically European um, and, you know, remove their culture and their language. And, yeah, that's that's really similar. So I'm... I didn't know much about it from the US point of view, but it, it also made me want to think to read more about the Australian situation and, and because I, I don't have that much history. I, I have some bits, but. And it's interesting because I, when the, uh, the, this is a little bit of a tangent, sorry, but when the Australian fires were going on, I wrote about them and it's interesting how much better the indigenous Australians did at fire management. And I think yeah. that's true in the United States here, like here as well. like. We are in the midst of some devastating fires here in the United States right now, and it's interesting to think how better management of that could have made a difference earlier. And on. yeah, that she meant that's like a direct link. This this fire stick farming by the Aboriginal people, which again led to removing the undergrowth so that you don't get these devastating fires, which are now happening because there's there's build up. Um, it's it's also similar to the idea of the sweet grass. So this chapter that you mentioned with her graduate student when she's talking about. Um, how they harvest the sweet grass and this actually stimulates the growth. So it kind of brings a new definition to the word disturbance, like how we think of disturbance and how we can have these actually positive relationships with nature. And that that to me was, I think, the most novel concept. The the idea, like, it's really early in the book. I think it's page six, um, so right at the very start. She asked her students who are like training ecologists about their relationship with nature and they can all discuss different things and how humans interact and how nature like different parts of it interact. But then she says, how can humans interact positively with nature? And they couldn't come up with anything. And honestly, that's, that's always been my point of view. I've always kind of felt, you know, we are a problem. There's not a way for humans, like we've screwed everything up. I mean, I work with climate change now, like it's, it's horrible. Everything is horrible. And to rethink of having this positive relationship with nature, that I found really, really inspiring. That's just, and, and she's realistic as, about it as well. So she she mentions on like page 31, uh, I know that we cannot all become hunter-gatherers. The living world could not bear our weight. But even in a market economy, can be can we behave as if the living world were a gift? So she's not unrealistic about it. She doesn't want us to, you know, all be organic farmers as, as some people kind of try and, claim to solve the world she, she says you know there's a problem but we need to reassess the way we interact with nature and try to make that positive and that to me was just so great like yeah, and uplifting as well yeah there's this whole chapter that really spoke to me it's called the, uh, the honorable Har uh, harvest um where she presents uh, sort of culture techniques from indigenous tribes about how to interact uh, with with nature when you're farming and what we can learn from it in our modern day agriculture and she has these different points that she raises like these sort of um, guidelines for the honor, uh, honorable harvest that are not technically written down um, but she she wrote down a couple of them and um, 
Yeah, there's things like take only what you need, take only that which is given, never take more than half, leave some for other, others. And concepts like these that, um, or harvest in a way that minimizes harm, these are ideas that we can introduce in into agriculture. At least we can think about ways how we can introduce these, these concepts, how we can... Um, perform agriculture in a way that it's less harmful to the environment and still feeds us and still um, yeah, allows us and probably even uh, allows us to survive even better because by reducing harm to the environment, we're also um, reducing issues that we will get with our farming practices like the dying of, of pollinators, of wild pollinators uh, that will have a massive impact on our farming um, when once that cr reaches a critical level and doing sustainable honorable harvesting can help with things like that with uh, keeping insect populations alive and keeping a, a diverse ecosystem uh, in place and that yeah that was very as you said like a very positive inspiring take on the world that i often miss that i, I that made it very enjoyable for me to read this because so many tales nowadays, they are sort of dystopian and pessimistic and negative, uh, which this book is not. Yeah, I feel like in nearly all the books we've read so far, we have been like, this person doesn't really seem to have a realistic view or like this book was so depressing. <laughs> like, so I, and I feel like she really does be, strike a good balance. I feel like at the end, she's like, you know, maybe it's too late. Like, maybe we've been irresponsible to the point of no turning back, you know? But on the other hand, she's sometimes like, here's how we can do it in a way that makes sense. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I feel like she has a really good balance of optimism and uh, a, the apocalyptic side. <laughs> Realism, as we call it these days. <laughs> like, <laughs> the apocalypse realism yeah and to be able to combine those two worlds together is it's just a lot of talent involved in that right that's a really tricky balance to get and i'm i'm so impressed by her ability to do that honestly how did you feel about the uh, spirituality in the book um which takes quite a big uh, space in there and i would like to know how that felt for you guys that's interesting. I mean, I enjoyed hearing her perspective on her spirituality. A lot of the stuff, I mean, I said a lot of the stuff we learn in schools here in the United States, but I didn't know all the stories that she told in the book, and I really enjoyed reading them. You know, I thought it was really beautiful the way she married the traditional stories with the things that she knows about science and botany. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed reading that, and I thought it added, it added a lot to the book. That I think if she had been like, oh no, I'm going to keep this strictly science and like leave the traditional stories out of this, I think it would have been a much lesser book, honestly. And I think that's that's a part of this this blending. I mean, she all the stories she told, she then explained like the parabol the parabolic, like the, the the nature of it being a parable where you have a lesson to learn from it. So she's like, here's the mythology. And then here's what we can take away from it. And not even that, she would take it one step for further where she would say, look, here's how we can apply this to the modern way of thinking. So, you know, actually let's put it in what you guys are, are familiar with and, and let's let's think about it in that context. And that I really appreciated. That was that was pretty good. Yeah, I I have to say that I feel similar. I 
I'm not a spiritual person at all. And um, so often in these books, the spiritual, uh, spiritual aspect of it is something that like drives me away a little bit. But here I enjoyed it so much. And I, it's such a kind-hearted, natural way of thinking about sort of the spiritual aspects of the world and putting them in context that it's, I, I couldn't be like snarky or um, sort of, <laughs> what's the word like like atheist about it. i mean like nah this is wrong like there there was no sky woman and there is like um they the 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 mystical um people that that or the sort of the the people of their their history that they that she talks about um they probably didn't act like this and and and, and stuff like that I, I didn't it didn't even cross my mind to question these stories because they were so well told and they fit so well into the whole storyline of the book um and it's I think yeah i i would have missed the spiritual parts as well if they wouldn't be there i think the only part that got quite heavy was at the very end there was this um kind of expulsion of windigo so it's this kind of um monster like creature but it's also linked to like selfishness and the desire to fill ourselves up by taking more and you know always being hungry so i think there's a quote that Windigo is the name for that within us which aches, uh, no, that cares more for its own survival than for anything else. And then um, it's that Windigo way that tricks us into believing that belongings will fill our hunger when it's belonging that we crave. And then at the, the kind of near the very end of the book, she has this uh, like dream sort of sequence, I believe, of um, trying to sort of purge that and, and heal that. And that's kind of the most mythical thing i mean it still works in the book but that was a bit where i was like what's what's happening i'm not really sure i understand what's happening here yeah i i also i don't know did you guys what did you think about the way it dealt with uh, christianity because i thought that was quite an interesting aspect as well that came in quite early in the book yeah she i thought she dealt with christianity very well and respectfully like she talks about the relationship between Skywoman and Eve in kind of a charming way that I thought was very clever. And then at the end she has uh, a chapter about her, a class that she's teaching in the Bible Belt in like Mississippi, I think. Mm -hmm. And how she has kind of trouble relating to them because they have different stories. And then um, they found a whole different way to relate to the botany lesson that she found really powerful. So if you read the book, I'll let you read that for yourself. It's a lovely story. Yeah, I, I really like that comparison of Eve and Sky Woman at the start where she has um, Sky Woman basically turning to Eve and saying, hey, you got a pretty crap deal. Like your, your idea instead of like getting to nurture a garden and become a garden is that you got thrown out of the garden and now you have hard work. And that, that's like, that, was, that was very charming, I found. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think it was also a very interesting perspective on Christianity that, yeah, that sort of helped me in my own approach to that religion. That it has like a completely different approach to the relationship between human and nature. That it's much more nature in, in Christianity. Nature is something that's at the disposal of humans, while in indigenous cultures it's more of a eye-to-eye -eye level or that's like it's all part of a bigger whole and therefore as a human it's a responsibility to also care for nature and not just use nature um and but i, I 
I think that she also put this thing of like, that doesn't have to be the way you, you envision it from a Christian point of view. You can also see it as a caretaking role. And I mean, as, as Ellen said, these students kind of feeling a link through nature, this can also be a part of any belief system, right? There can still be the connection to nature. Uh, I want to talk quickly about language because I thought this was a really kind of strong theme that, that ran through the book in different ways. So, um, like it's it's really clear that this is something that's very dear to the author herself. Um, there's something where she talks about how she uses writing as an act of reciprocity with the world. So she tries to give back through her writing to kind of um, yeah return things that have been given to her. Um, then there's also this link link sorry to like indigenous language and the, the the power that different words can have so if you have a different word from something for something you think about that object in a different way and ultimately the idea of naming um parts of nature in the same way we we name humans or or using i think the the, the thing that really stood out to me was this idea of in in her native language you can have a verb to be a bay. That was the description. And she she couldn't understand that when she was first lang learning the language. She said, like, how is to be a bay a language? And it's coming from this idea that water is also a living thing and water can therefore choose to take different forms. And one of the things that it can do, one of the ways that this like sort of natural force can, can do is, is to choose to become a bay. And I thought that was really important. And it also made me question the way I think about science because I've always been quite, from a scientific point of view, I've always been quite against personifying animals or trees when we write up about them in the science. I think this is, has some problems because people always want to see things as humans. But this was going in the other direction for me. It was not about trying to force animals and, and plants into a human form. It was instead giving the respect that we currently give only to humans to animals and plants and this this is really nice um there's, there's a quote that says the arrogance of english is that the only way to be animate to be worthy of respect and moral concern is to be human and that's kind of something she continuously tries to address throughout the book and i really love that i i think so too i think that was a uh, it was also something that spoke to me this idea of of personification in a in a way that language shapes our perception and our approach to things. I mean, it's something that I often think about when I talk or think about sort of gender-inclusive language, um, where there is this idea that the way that the, if we change the way we speak, we change the way we think, and that can make us uh, more open or more inclusive, or just in, in general, like yeah, a more di uh, uh, accepting of a more diverse group of people and this strikes along the same lines that if we start to address nature as something that's worth respecting in our language, then it will also make us respect nature more. Um, even if we are sort of first forced um, to use these, these words over time, it will shape our brain and our thinking in a way that we then start to be more respectful. And I really and like that concept and, yeah, I wish we would use that more. I wish we could like bring that to English and personify things more to the point that we can yeah, see them as something that's worth respecting. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. And I really respect her efforts to learn uh, these languages that are dying. You know, she talked 
extensively about how few people know these languages and how much effort she put into learning them because it's so hard to learn because not very many people speak it. And uh, she and her sister just call each other and try to say a couple things in these languages. And um, yeah, I thought that was really cool. And uh, her efforts to do that are just incredible. And again, the history behind that, which is that the languages are being lost because they, these children were forced from their homes and they were forced to not learn the language. So mm -hmm. you get that historical context in there as well. And now there's only the elder left that can speak the languages, but they, at least in some communities, they take great care in, in transferring that knowledge to younger generations, although it is, it is hard. And she said, like, when she talks to her sister that she has these, like, very sort of meaningless conversations about just, like, I went to town, I bought apples, uh, mm. because her vocabulary doesn't allow her to speak of more complex things yet, but still she makes this effort to have sort of these, these meaningless conversations with her, her sister um, just to keep the, the language alive and keep that going, which I found absolutely adorable and, and beautiful. Yeah, same. And how she goes and greets the day every morning. She's like, hello trees, hello grass, hello birds. Yeah, I think I want to reread some of these sections again and try to draw inspiration from that and maybe use that with my son and like uh, That was what I was actually thinking. Do you do you want to take your child camping now and Yeah, I want I want to teach him all of these sort of gratitude and respect ideas towards nature. Um And I mean, in, in Germany, we don't have natural forests anymore, or very few of them. Like pretty much everything um, was, all the trees were cut down at one point and are now regrown as sort of um, production forests with, uh, they, they are sort of artificial. So some of the stories that she tells, that Robin Wall Kimmerer tells in the, in the book about the, the excursions that she does with her students to almost untouched areas, This will just be very, very hard to do in Germany. But still, the concept of seeing the forest as sort of a respectful being, as an entity um, that we're not just exploiting, but that we're interacting with, is something I would really like to have in my sort of education for my son towards, towards nature and, and our surroundings. Um, of course, I won't be like appropriating the culture in the way that I will just like straight up copy these things with my poor understanding of these cultures but sort of take the spirit of it and take the ideas of it um, of being grateful to what is what is happening around us that's beautiful yeah, I mean let's see how how I manage but um, this book although I have to say technically I didn't finish the, the whole book yet because it's a it's a fairly long book um, I, I sped through the last bits uh, as an audiobook, which I can also recommend. Um, it's read by the author herself. Um, uh, and there I could like listen to twice uh, this at, at uh, double speed. Um, <laughs> But you've got to go back and read for sure. Yeah, I will, I will pick this uh, book up time and time again. I know that already now because it's so, there's so many ins inspiring stories in there for different situations um, from like really basic agriculture like the three sisters to spiritual ideas to uh, sustainable agriculture like you know honorable harvest um, to the, the ideas about language the ideas about teaching I really love her approach towards teaching and the way she interacts with the students as she tells it in the book um, plants being the ultimate teachers as well yeah 
and that she always takes part in the, these things herself. That when she she has a grad student um, who does an experiment on um, sweet grass growing, and she, as her supervisor, goes with her in the field and plants and counts and grows the sweet grass. She's not a supervisor sitting in her office and sort of saying like you know what you should do? You should do this and that experiment. And then the student hurries off and does the experiment. She's in there. She's with her hands in in the experiment and taking part in it. And I really enjoyed that as well. Yeah, she sounds like she would be a fabulous advisor. Like if you were yeah, that's so great. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I kind of agree. This this book was like the first book I've read in a while where, I mean, I it took me a lot longer to read than I thought it would re- it would take. And I actually got quite panicked in the last few days that I wouldn't manage to read it um, because it's so dense and there's so many things in there that I wanted to just like think about instead of just passing over it quickly and moving to the next page. It was it took a lot longer and I was kind of rushing through it, making sure I would finish by, by today. And then I got to the stage where I had like 20 pages left and I was like, I want to slow down. <laughs> like it's ending now and I, I want to like stop rushing because... I want to like savor those last 20 pages and really make sure it all gets in a really great book. Yeah. And the lovely thing is like we talked about earlier, all the chapters are pretty much autonomous. So we can (laughs) go back and, or we can all go back and read them as we see fit. And it even has a dick joke in it um, that I marked. Oh, the one about the mushrooms? Yeah. yeah. It's the In fact, I learned that the mystical word um, pupawi, uh, I hope I pronounced that correctly. In fact, I learned that the mystical word pupawi is used not only for mushrooms, but also for certain other shafts that rise mysteriously <laughs> in the night. <laughs> um, yeah. It, it, it's, yeah, I enjoy when, when references like this come up out of nowhere in a book that's sort of... <laughs> Then the other thing is uh, an, another segment that I just wanted to point out to illustrate like how beautifully this is written is um, when she talks about uh, tr- removing all of these uh, the the muck and algae and things growing in this little pond from the pond because she eventually wants to swim in the pond. Um, she describes it like this. She says, As I tried to skim the algae, I discovered that they hung like sheer green curtains through the water. If you reach far out of a light canoe and try to lift a heavy mat of algae at the end of a rake, physics dictates that swimming will occur. And I really <laughs> like this, this phrasing. Physics dictates that swimming will occur. Um, and yeah. it's just, she has these beautiful images and ways to describe sometimes i mean this is in itself a a funny side to imagine like she's hanging out of the canoe but also sometimes um stuff that's a little bit drier in topic she still manages to to write about it in such a fun way like when she talks about uh lichen 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 these um these organisms that are pretty much a mix out of algae and fungi um, mm. that grow together on like sort of um, crusts uh, and I've seen other descriptions of the same topic that were extremely dry and she had like a very colorful imaging talking about it like like a sort of marriage um, and um, <laughs> how they how these two partners in these uh, symbiosis they like the the algae can be more promiscuous than the fungus the fungus usually always picks the same algae while the algae picks different fungi um Mm -hmm. and she says like we all have seen marriages that look like this Um, (laughs) and and things like that that make it made it very approachable and and very yeah understandable the way she talked about this this uh relationship between these organisms 
So, uh, overall, I guess like, I don't really have to ask like if you like this, right? I have one very small criticism I came up with. It's it's very tiny, but there were some bits where she would tell um, kind of the story and then link it to this scientific fact. So the example is this harvesting of the, the sweet grass and how actually um, disturbing the sweet grass makes it grow faster. And then she said, this was not really like the newest thing. Like there are actually studies that show that grazing by bison can stimulate sweet grass. There's something in the bison of the, the saliva of the bison that stimulates not sweet grasses, but grasses to grow. I want the reference. That was the one thing I was missing where there was like so many of these scientific stories where I was like, cite your sources because I want to go and read about this now. Like it's so fascinating. I'm, and, and I was Googling it and I can't find anything. Like I can find something from the 80s. I'm like, is that the study? Like, I bet if you email her, she'll give it to you. <laughs> yeah. And then you get to say that you emailed her and she responded. Oh yeah, that would maybe be the coolest <laughs> ever. I do want to mention that I also listened to um, a podcast called Ologies, and there's one by her about mosses, um, bryophytes. Mm. So I can really um, encourage you to all go and listen. Like Ologies is anyway quite a cool podcast. It talks about, I mean, all different ologies. Um, so I don't know. There was one about volcanoes, volcanology. There's, you know, everything you can imagine. And there's one with um, Robin Wall Kimura. So oh. definitely check that one out. Cool. Did you have anything like negative about the book, Ellen? No, just that one chapter bugged me where she wrote as her daughter. <laughs> that made me uncomfortable from her daughter's perspective. <laughs> yeah, I have to say that I usually am a negative Nancy a little bit. I, 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 I'm very nitpicky very often. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought for a while I, I can't really say anything negative about this book. I found it a joy from, from start to almost finish. Um, and maybe that's the only thing if I really have to say something sort of criticizing the, the book is that it's not a quick read, but that's not yep. a bad thing. Like it's, as, as you said, Tegan, it's, it's beautiful that like you don't really want the, this book to end. So it's great that it's going for a while. It, it, I didn't feel that it had any length. Um, yeah, so it's... I yeah when, when with the other books I had often a much longer list of the things that I didn't like than the things that I liked. I think my I uh, my list of things I didn't like is is empty for this book, which is great. Yeah, definitely mark out a space in your reading calendar for this if you decide to take it on because it calls for a lot of time and thought, but it's worth it in our opinion, in my opinion, and I think yeah. And bring sticky notes, like you're going to want to be um, marking mm -hmm. the pages, I would say. I realized when I went back through the, the notes that um, I sort of, I, I just read a few sentences where I put my note and uh, I then recalled the rest of the story and I, I had suddenly a smile on my face. which was just like, ah, yeah, I remember this was a really cool story. Um, and so I will leave my sticky notes in there um, even when we're done with this episode because it's just so nice to just like pick it up open one of the notes and be like oh yeah that was a really cool story that was and that was a very nice rem um, remark that she made and a nice observation that she made about the whole concept um yeah so bring sticky notes i hope one of them is on the salamanders i really want to like fondle a salamander now and see how it feels like that's going to be my <laughs> life's mission so like give it a little squeeze <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so what do you have anything to say about reciprocity? I would say this is like the biggest theme of the, the book that we haven't really got too much yet. 
Yeah, like I love the theme throughout this book of gift giving, the idea that you receive gifts and you should treat them as gifts and then you owe something in return that you should give out of gratitude and not like in a more monetary exchange type of way. Yeah, I think that idea of the gift economy is really beautiful and I like the way that she talked about it. She she has a quote by Lewis Hyde, um, which says, it's the cardinal difference between gift and commodity exchange that a gift establishes a feeling bond between two people. And that comes up throughout the book. And it's not just about between two people, it's also between people and nature, which, yeah, again, I think an overriding theme of the whole whole story. And there's also something a bit later on. So I think the the later chapters of the book deal a bit more with the environmental crisis that we're in right now, climate change, but also like all of the, the various poisonings of the earth. Um, and there's a, a line that says, restoring land without restoring relationships is an empty exercise. So it's it's really this idea that we can plant trees again, we can you know fix things visibly, but unless we redevelop these links, like, sort of ecosystem links so within within the ecosystem like the the trees with the other plants and the animals but also the links of the human with the land it's not going to work and i think yeah that that rings very nicely as well would that make you more or less hopeful towards the future because it seems like just fixing the the visual things um having some preserved habitats and so on seems so much easier than to change our approach towards the land and to, towards nature i think it's realistic to me i, I think um it's yeah it's true it's people are not going to care about things unless they actually care like you have to have that conservation only works if people mm -hmm. love something right and to love something you have to understand it i think this is like saying like this by um jared durell conservation biologist that yeah we need to we need to to have this connection and i, I like how she 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 links that how scientists can have a connection. It doesn't have to be like she's bringing it from both sides, and and I really think that she's she's really good about this. She's like you know you don't have to have this indigenous background to have the connection. You can also forge your own myths and own ways. You, I mean you shouldn't appropriate. She makes that very clear. But there's some sort of um, melding that can happen to get like this development of of mythology as immigrants into the U.S. and of like around the world for the rest of us. But mm -hmm. I also really appreciated this. Uh, for me, it was definitely something that I will take into my own view of the world. This idea of of nature giving us gifts and not that we are taking something because we deserve it, because we put in um, our energy. Um, so that's definitely something I will take, take from this book uh, in, in the long term. I wonder how this will play out in everyday life i like i wonder how i will then use that when i go shopping when i go into nature when i just be a when i'm just a part of this society um but this is something i'm sort of this this is something i'm excited to figure out when uh when i'm going with, forward with this sort of in the future because I, this is still all fresh from the book um and i think it's something that has to sort of seep in for a little bit And then something nice will emerge from that, a, a nice approach or a, a new idea or a, yeah, a new view on the world will uh, emerge from that. And I'm looking forward to that. For me, I mean, I finished the book probably two weeks ago. And I think I have found myself being more conscious of things like paper, being like, oh, this came from a tree. Like, I'm grateful for that specifically. Thanks, tree. Like, you put out this paper so I could write this thing. And, like, that makes me feel, like, 
I should write things in my notebook that mean something. Because, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, a tree made that. A tree made that notebook, which, I mean, Robin Wall Kimmer talks about a lot, like, how she feels responsibilities as a writer because, like, she owes it to the world and, like, this is her gift to the world. And um, I thought that's really beautiful. And as a writer, I love that. And so that's kind of what I've been taking away from it is just to think about tracing back everything I use to its origin it's usually a plant and be like thanks plant <laughs> thanks for this food thanks for this notebook I appreciate it I really like that idea just thinking about going through my garden and when I'm picking berries I'm just like thank you for the berries I, I sometimes wonder what the words actually were that she says she very often says um, I said a few words of gratitude or um, uh, I think also even when she's planting um, the sweet grass she says a few words to the sweet grass I would love to know what these words were so I could get an idea how to craft my own words for that but maybe that's the point of it that you have to like find your own words um, mm, they might be personal or anything else major that we have to say I don't know I, I th- the, the point about being positive about something is that you have much less to <laughs> get angry and rant about like a rant yeah. is so much more fruitful in terms of content because you can be all like ah oh, this is wrong and that is wrong but here i i i don't have that at all so i feel like we ranted about how good it is yeah i think for for me we touched about all the the things that really stood out to me apart from like the the sweet grass i, w- I wondered what that is and in germany we call it bison grass and i only know it from vodka um, there's like a, a vodka, uh, oh. a Polish vodka that is flavored with bison grass. Zubrovka. That's Brovka. the only place where I could get in touch with this. Um, <laughs> and I, I wish there would be more. Although, no, I think I once saw it somewhere in the wild because I realized that the, the grass, the, the meadows were smelling very, very beautifully. And I think it must have been some sweet grass or rel- at least a relative. But apart oh, yeah, from that, I, I just wish I would have that closer to here. But I mean, it's a. Ellen, have you ever come across it in, in the wild? That's a good question. I don't think I have. I didn't really think about it. Um, I don't think I have, though. I mean, I probably have in some sort of context, but I'll be sure to keep my eye out in a, in a better way. I'll look it up online and see what it looks like and then keep my eye out on it and see if I can find it in the wild. Because yeah, def- we, we have like areas with bison... Like, there's two bison who live in San Francisco, like, stuff like that. So I wonder if they live around it. Have you ever seen a bison? In yeah, for free? sure. Are they as huge? I, I somewhere read that they are so much bigger than you imagine. Yeah, they're huge. It's fun. <laughs> Y'all should come to San Francisco. There's two in the park. Oh, yeah. That would be nice. I mean, that's it. We should wrap up, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Shall we go to the ratings? What, what, are, what rating are you giving the book? Five chloroplasts. Yeah, five out of five. Uh, what did I use? <laughs> it's a cyanide. <laughs> you had hemlock leaves oh, no. the last time. Hemlock leaves. Five out of five hemlock leaves. Which also fits because they they mention uh, she's mentioning hemlock um, so when she's talking about cedar, so that is also mentioned in the book. And I had to think of you when the hemlock came up. Oh, perfect. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I also give it a five out of five uh, bushels of sweet grass. It's. Um, <laughs> I haven't read something as enjoyable in a while that's 
sort of on the between fiction and non-fiction although i think non it's not really fiction but it's sort of no but between it's a story science as well as poetry. being si yeah yeah mm -hmm. and yeah uh, absolute recommendation for everyone to read them so yeah. uh, we we actually didn't discuss before the show what we actually want to read next uh, which usually we we do that we don't do that live um, but now <laughs> we pretty much have to we have two suggestions i have one of them here already Shall we go with that one or the other one? Oh, I'm down what? for either The Drunken Botanist or uh, Hope Jaren's memoir. Tell us about your book, Jaren. What, what, what are you offering? I, I have uh, The Drunken Botanists, uh, The Plants That Create the World's Great Drinks by Amy Stewart. It's something a friend of mine recommended to uh, me uh, who really enjoys like fancy different types of drinks. And this book goes th through um, different plants and where we find them in spirits and liqueurs and all things um, drinkable. And it's a mixture of tales about the plants, tales about the drinks, recipes for the drinks. Uh, I think the biggest risk that I see with this book is that we all become alcoholics from it uh, after we read through it. Because uh, some of the recipes that I already saw when I, I browsed through the book um, sounded really delicious. Um, and... I see my, my little bar here already growing, uh, my house bar with new spirits and I have to get to mix all of these different drinks. Um, but yeah, it's it also has a chapter about uh, bison grass in here um, and uh, a cocktail that's mostly the bison grass, vodka, dry uh, vermouth and apple juice, which is like, I think the way I would always drink this vodka anyway. <laughs> um, so you want to do that one and we all, we all rock up next time with a drink in hand um, yeah. that represents our favorite chapter of the book. Exactly. And I should warn you, I don't drink before we read this book. <laughs> I'll have a different perspective on this. <laughs> that would be very interesting then, to know if yeah. that makes you interested in the concept of drinking. I don't want to like bring you to drink. I mean, I feel fine with reading it. I'll just not relate to any of the recipes. <laughs> <laughs> Is that okay though still to read or would you prefer something different? Yeah. Oh, no, no, I'm fine to read it. I'm just telling y'all I'll have a different perspective on it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Yoram will bring the, the I've drunk every recipe in the book version. <laughs> yes. I'll bring the I've tried one or two and Ellen and you'll bring the none and then we'll see how that influences our... <laughs> our feelings about the quality of the book yeah it'll yeah. be very abstract for me <laughs> i'll be broadcasting live from the emergency room next time with like you're severe you're liver damage only allowed to read a chapter if you're also nursing the drink that's mentioned in the chapter that's going to be your game rules <laughs> yeah it was nice knowing you um this will be the last thing i do apparently <laughs> okay so we can get this book um Let's put a link to it in the show notes so that anybody who wants to read and drink along with us can also do that um, when yeah. we join next week, they'll be next month, sorry. Yeah, no, next by next week, then I will, would be definitely <laughs> dead, even if we would just do like 10% of the drinks in here. Is it is it really so many different recipes in there? It's really like... It's not, not, it's not only recipes. It's a lot about the different stories um, and the descriptions of the trees and their fl or, or plants and their flavors. I okay, it's not just a recipe book. It's not just. Like, it's sometimes when it fits, then there's a recipe, but mm -hmm. mostly it's about the plants. Um, cool. And some things get a little bit more space, like hops, for example, or rice or, or wheat, because they are used, uh, they're like more important to the culture of drinking, while others, like aromatics, get shorter mentions, but still, um, yeah, quite extensively. And I think also some, some things that are 
uh, a little bit exotic and not so well known. Like I'm just opening, I'm just flicking through the pages and there's about some like uh, lemon fruit and there's like a shinotto, which is a specific uh, citrus fruit that I think is found uh, in, in uh, Campari, but a, a fruit that I had no idea about before. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess it will be nice to discover some, some like fruit and uh, fruits and aromatics and and plants that, uh, yeah, that maybe some common plant where we don't know where it's used in drinks and some uncommon plants that we didn't even know that existed. I I guess that's my hope for the book. Sounds cool, great. Let's do it. Where where uh, if if people want to get in contact with us, where can they reach us? Uh, I am on Twitter at Ellen Earhart, or you can find me on Instagram at Ellen Airplant. And I make a podcast called Plant Crimes. Sorry, I forgot about that. <laughs> I'm yeah. working on the second season now. Um, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Plants and Pipettes and on Twitter at Plants Pipettes. Yeah, and I, there you can talk to Tegan and me. Um, if you want to learn more about yeah, interesting links between plants and crime, you can f uh, learn more about that on plant crimes uh, uh ellen's podcast and if you want to learn more about molecular plant biology you can come to plants and pipettes and check that out um that's our little project where we talk about molecular plant biology in all kinds of different species and things and, and interesting phenomena and yeah it was fun talking to you it was a lot of fun reading the book it was a great book thanks for the recommendation yeah. ellen yeah. really great Y'all are so welcome. I'm so glad it turned out so well. Thanks, Robin <laughs> Waltimer. <laughs> Thanks, Robin. And um, with that, I think that's it. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye. The opening and closing music is from the album Green Ideas from Pine Walk. You can find the music on Bandcamp where it is published under a Creative Commons License 3.0.